Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Center Court with Hall of Famer Ralph Sampson. I'm Jason Zone Fisher. We've got a great episode for you today because the NBA is finally back, just two days away from tip-off. I have been counting down the days. I've been missing some basketball, Ralph. How about you? Well, for me, it's summertime, so it's going to be weird for basketball to be back, but I'm looking forward to seeing how this bubble is going to work and interesting how the players are going to play and react. So it's going to be fun to watch and see what happens. It is. I mean, this is, uh, this is a weird year. We're not used to watching basketball in the middle of summer. Normally, this is baseball time and you're out by the pool. But I just I need sports, man. And I, I'm missing my basketball. So I'm glad that they have gone through all of these efforts to bring the game back. And I really hope that it works, especially as we are just days away from tip off. Well, you said, you know, missing sports. We're missing a lot of things that's yeah. uh, normal in our world and life. So this should bring us back a little bit, give us something to watch and look forward to. So I commend the NBA for putting it together. Players stay safe and it should be fun to watch. Well, we're going to get into all of that today. We've got a very special guest, Chris Broussard from Fox Sports, uh, an NBA insider. He's going to give us all the download on what to expect in Orlando from the NBA bubble, some teams to watch, some players to watch, who's going to be affected by having no fans in attendance, no home court advantage. It's going to be a whole different game, and uh, Chris is a great person to chat with to preview a lot of what's going to be happening there. Ralph, I mean... How did you, how were you affected in your career by having fans in attendance, both at home rooting for you and on the road maybe rooting against you? Well, it's funny. We'll get Chris Bustard's, um perspective on all this from a journalist's perspective, right? And understand how to write and how to go through those different challenges that he has to deal with with the bubble, writing sports from, you know, 25 years ago to today. But for me, the fans are, are crucial and key when we play, the excitement. Even going to opposing people's arenas and the fans booing you makes you excited, right? So to hear no noise, I just think the NBA is going to be something amazing to watch and see. They got to have some noise somewhere. They got to have the organ playing. They got to have something in the background. They got maybe black out the stands. I don't know, but I'm expecting NBA Entertainment to come up with something very special. So I'm looking forward to that. But as a player, not having fans and hearing my tennis shoes squeak and getting you know lathered up to really play against my opponent. Then I got to walk off the court and go back in the bubble with them when I'm going to hate them because we got to play them. It's going to be interesting to watch that dynamics, not only on the court, but off the court as well. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I mean, these guys are staying at the same hotel. Uh, they're they're living together. They're eating at the same restaurant within the well, they're, they're, property. Their practice, their practice courts are side by side in some right. some of these places, right? So you got I saw the Pacers and the Pelicans and all, I mean side by side. So are they practicing at the same time or are they practice? I mean, why can't you just have one court? But they got two, three courts. So they, somebody's got to practice at the same time. Yeah, so it's scouting going to be difficult to watch, but it should be. Yeah, it's going to definitely be very interesting. Uh, interesting to see how they're pulling this all off. It's going to look and feel very different, but at the end of the day, it's still uh, five on five, and you know, one basketball and two ten foot hoops. It's still the same rules, so we'll we'll see how how it all comes together. Well, before we bring Chris on, it's time for our regular segment: What's new? What's good? And Ralph, I got something new and good. 
Drew Holiday of the New Orleans Pelicans announced that him and his wife, Lauren, are going to donate all of his remaining game checks from this season, which could be up to $5.3 million to a variety of charities and black-owned businesses. He's joining a bunch of players, Patty Mills, Dwight Howard, who have come out to say they're going to be doing the same thing. Uh, that is great news. How, how do you feel about it? No, it's wonderful. I think a lot of other athletes probably will join forces with that and figure out where their heart lies as far as what they want to do and how they want to give back. So I commend those guys. I mean, the Holiday family, we talk about all the time, three great athletes inside their family playing the NBA. And $5.2 million will help a lot of people, a lot of organizations. But I just want to make sure they give back to the causes that will make an impact. These people today sometimes just take that money and just pay salaries and do other things. So I hope they're giving away their, their hard-earned money to somebody that's going to make an impact that they also can be involved with, understand, and support, not only by giving money, but giving their time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I do hope the more players follow the lead of Drew Holiday. Absolutely. It's amazing what he's doing. and. And honestly, I hope more owners take notice because they're the ones who are uh, have have the bigger banks, uh, the bigger checkbooks. And I hope that they follow their players' leads and do more charitable giving uh, to give back in a time like this. I agree with you 100%. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is great news. Drew Holiday, one of the great players in our game and an even better person in the NBA. Uh, and I've just become an even bigger Drew Holiday fan than I was before. So I think I'm going to be rooting for the New Orleans Pelicans right, to, to right. make the playoffs. Right now they're on the outside looking in, but they are within striking distance. They've got a, an easy schedule out of these eight seeding games and uh, Zion looking healthy. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if they can make it. I'm, I'm going to be rooting for them just for Drew Holiday, if no other reason. Got it. So you're jumping ship from Cleveland. I see Cleveland's not in the playoffs, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm never jumping ship from Cleveland. That's just, you know. I'm just making sure. Making sure yeah, there's not much straight. to root for right not now. They're not playing. It. So stress-free right, uh, as a Cavs fan. There's All right. nothing to worry about there. Yeah, don't worry. That You always got to bring that up. You always got to well, rub it in. Got no choice. Got no choice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, from one Cavalier, Cleveland Cavalier fan, to uh, another Cavalier, Ralph Sampson, I say let's get to it because I'm so excited to chat with Chris Broussard. He's the co-host of The Odd Couple on Fox Sports Radio and a great podcast. Ralph, I know you've been a guest on his podcast several times and have been a, uh, a friend of Chris's. He's an NBA insider. We're going to talk about his entire career, which started in Cleveland, actually, at the Cleveland Plain Dealer and then the Akron Beacon Journal covering the Cavs uh, to all of his work with the New York Times, ESPN, and his journey that brought him to where he is today at Fox Sports. So without further ado, let's bring him on, the one and only Chris Broussard. We are so excited here at Center Court because the NBA is finally back. We have been waiting so long for this moment, and now here we are just two days away from games kicking off again, and there's no one better to join us to talk about the NBA's return than the one and only Chris Broussard from Fox Sports. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Man, it's great to be on with you guys. We had Ralph on my radio show last week, The Odd Couple. And yeah, so they're tall and they're short. <laughs> right. It's good to uh, return to favor and be on your show. Well, you were playing point guard, so you, you yes, passed the ball yes. a couple of times, so it was good. We had fun doing that. I wish I had a center like you when I played, believe me. 
Hey, I, I, <laughs> I would just rack up assists, throw it just, into you. <laughs> just, just get them down the court. It's all good. Just, just make throw those lobs. That's what I try to do on center court. Just throw up those lobs around <laughs> and slam it home. You know, he's still finishing it strong. Uh, we are so excited that the NBA is coming back. I know you are too. But before we get into that, we want to get to know you, Chris Broussard, uh, the person, the journalist. Uh, talk a little bit about your career and how you got to this point to be this NBA insider that you are. Now, your career has spanned many different styles of reporting from an NBA beat writer to an analyst to uh, a, uh, an opinion maker, uh, all sorts of things. I'm curious. What part of your journey uh, has been maybe the most fulfilling? What What do you like doing the best? Wow, uh, that's a great question because you're right. I've gone from being a, a strictly a reporter uh, on in print print journalism, which many of the people, a lot of people might not know it, but a lot of us that you see on TV now regularly, Mike Wilbon, Tony Kornheiser, Skip Bayless, Stephen A. Smith, Rob Parker, you can go on and on. We started out just as reporters, you know, mm-hmm. and um, David Aldridge, Rachel Nichols, you can go many more. And um, then, you know, they we had opportunities for television. And so those that had some type of charisma and were comfortable in front of the camera and had good information kind of morphed into TV personality. So um, went from write, strictly writing to doing television And then it kind of got more and more TV and my writing got less and less. And now at Fox Sports, I'm strictly TV and radio and and, an opinionist and an an analyst. And so for where I'm at now, having done all of, you know, been a beat writer, been a television reporter, um, now I'm totally happy where I'm at. That's why I left ESPN and went to Fox because – ESPN just wanted to keep me as a reporter back in 2016 and Fox gave me the option to be an analyst and just, you know, commentate and give my opinions on news rather than having to chase down the news. So I, for, for this stage of my career is certainly much better, but as far as fulfillment, I, I gotta be honest, when I first left the New York times in 2004 and went to uh, ESPN, the magazine, the magazine lifestyle is, especially if you have a family, is the best lifestyle you can have at the pro level. And like if you want to cover sports at the highest level and you have a family, magazine writing is the best. Because when I was at ESPN, the magazine, I wrote maybe five big stories a year. And so you get to spend more time at home. I have two kids, so I was able to spend time with them, be home with the wife. Whereas when you write, when you cover pro sports for a newspaper, ESPN, you're traveling a lot and you're gone, like almost like an NBA player, you know? So um, that was very fulfilling. And when I was at ESPN, the magazine, I got to go, I traveled the world. Like I went to Italy when Brandon Jennings left high school. You guys may remember when he yeah. left high yeah. school and went straight to play in Italy rather than college. I was there with him for three weeks, for a year, that, or, four, you know, uh, three weeks at a time. That was fulfilling. I went to Spain uh, through ESPN the Magazine. I went to Kuwait through, and was there with the troops for uh, a week uh, with ESPN the Magazine. But most fulfilling, I got to go to Africa. And I went to Senegal for three weeks. We were doing a series where 
we were talking about how they develop players from around the world. Because remember, this was like around 2006 when the U.S., we were starting to lose in international play. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went to Africa and believe it, it's interesting. That's where I met Masai Ujiri, who's now the you know president of the Toronto Raptors and maybe the best executive in the league right now. Um, but he was just a scout, I believe, for the Nuggets at the time. But he yeah. was just a scout back then. And um, they, you know, they had athletes, players from Nigeria, players from Senegal. And I was over there for a basketball camp. But as an African-American, to go over to Africa was just a great experience. And so that would probably be – I've had some great times and opportunities. But that was certainly one of the most, if not the most, fulfilling trip I've had with my career. So, so that's interesting. So you've seen it evolve from just a journalist writing to TV to worldwide attention. Young kids today, it's totally different, right? They, they don't have to come in as a journal. They have all these avenues from, you know, when I played, there was no social media. You know, there was no none of that, right? So now you got social media. So how do you educate young kids out there that may want to be in the, follow your footsteps? What do you think they should be doing now? Because it's totally different when, when we came up. It's totally That's a it's, great it's, question. It's, it's dynamic, different, yeah. way different. When I, I remember when I was coming up, I had an internship, and I was talking to some people about whether, like you kind of had to choose, do you want to go the print route, and which I chose to write for newspapers, or do you want to go broadcasting, either TV or radio? It wasn't combined. It was like you have to choose one or the other, and they told me it was – easier to get into print you know so I went print and you know started that but then over time you know they kind of began to mesh together and now so what I would say so and when I came out it was either you had to go the traditional route to be in media you could either if you found you had to find a job at a tv station radio station newspaper or magazine that was it you know, and if you didn't, unfortunately, if you couldn't get into one of those spots, you weren't going to be in the media. And now it's completely changed. So a few things I would say, one, be multifaceted. Whereas I was strictly a writer and trained in writing. Now I would say, you know, get in front of the camera, uh, be, be skilled with radio, be skilled with television, uh, be able to be skilled even for photograph, like not photography, but video taping things because toward the end of my time at ESPN the magazine they wanted me to start bringing a camera with me so if I was doing a story say if I was doing a story on you Ralph they would want me to not just interview you but also have get videotape of you doing whatever which I didn't really like to be honest because when I was in reporting mode I wanted to focus on you know everything I'm seeing talking to you, seeing what's going on or as we're talking, just that I wanted to be in like tunnel vision. And I didn't like having to bring a camera and, you know, videotape somebody, but that I would say definitely get skilled in that, know how to write. I think writing, unfortunately, is not as important as it used to be, but I still would say be a gifted writer, read the best writers out there, and, you know, take little things, learn from them. That's what I did. And then have your own personal flavor. But be multifaceted, number one. Number two, uh, you can learn a lot 
even, even if you can't get a job at a big website, newspaper, whatever it may be, network, you can go on YouTube yourself. You can start your own podcast. You can start your own uh, YouTube channel or blog website. And that's a way you can, you know, get clips. So you can send to some of the bigger outlets. If, you know, whereas before, like I said, when I came in, you couldn't get clips if you didn't work for one of these outlets. Now you can create your own video clips, your own blog posts, your own podcast, and everybody's not going to make it that way. But if yours is unique enough and that you can get a number of viewers, you can turn that into either working at one of the bigger outlets or, you know, get a credential with a team, a professional team or college team. And then you can really be a legitimate reporter and go on from there. So it's democratized it. There are a lot more opportunities. Mm -hmm. There are fewer opportunities at the big places, but there are more ways to get into the business overall. I'm curious. You said something about pre-interview, you get in the mode and mentality just to do it. and You didn't like to be behind the camera. So similar to basketball and sports, I'm sure you played at some levels. But tell me about when you're getting ready for an interview, right? Uh, Michael Jordan, overseas, whoever it may be. How, how, you obviously prepare a certain way, but you want to get in that groove where the interview was really good. How, how did that? How did that? How do you create that? I know yeah. how to create it in basketball, but how do you create that as a, as a writer, journalist, to get there and get the questions that you want to get answered? Well, like you said, if I was doing, say, a sit-down interview, obviously you read a ton of stuff about the person, and then I would actually write down my questions, but always knowing. Because for me, writing stuff down helps me memorize it more. So it's not like I'm looking down every question, but it kind of gets in my mind that way. And if I have to look down every now and then, I have the stuff there. But always be ready to, if, if the person says something interesting that I wasn't planning on following up on, be ready to follow up on that. So th that with sit-down interviews, that's kind of how you get into the mentality but for magazine interviews, which I was kind of talking about with ESPN the magazine, the difference there is that, you know, Ralph, when you were in the league, it was like you saw your beat writers every day at every practice day. or yep. at games in the locker room. But it was mostly basketball related. I know it was different even when you were playing because they, they weren't quite doing the charter flights, you know. And, and so you, writers had a little more access. They could go watch full practices. When I was covering the NBA initially, you could only watch maybe the last 10 minutes of practice. The teams were flying on charters, so you no longer on the plane with them. So most of the time we saw the players, it was in basketball uh, at environments. Whereas when I started writing magazine articles, man, I mean, I would spend three, four days with a guy. I, and, and sometimes more, like in Italy, I was like part of the family with Brandon Jennings. I mean, we're going out to eat every night. I'm at his house with his, his mom and brother were there. A lot of times magazine articles, you may be riding in the car with a guy. You're at a restaurant with a guy. You're meeting his family. You just have way more access. And so what we always felt at ESPN the Magazine was the goal of the writer was to bring the reader to where he could never go. So again, if I'm doing a story on Ralph Sampson and I'm at your house and maybe we're out by the pool or 
we then we go out to eat. Like the average reader is never going to have that opportunity. So part of it is painting the scene. So if I'm if I'm at your house and we're out by the pool, I'm I'm looking at the whole scene. I'm not just getting my little interview with you. I'm writing down what that what it looks like, what the pool's like, what the decor of your house is like. You know, um, are there other people that just because it's true, the cliche, a picture paints a thousand words. And so in, in with magazine writing, it was more the whole, you're, you're just reporting on everything. If we're in the car together, what music was playing? You know, um, how you're, are you, are you cursing out people on the road <laughs> that passed you over? You know? but, but the interesting thing too is that when you did magazine writing, a lot of the time you were with the person was kind of maybe off the record stuff, right? If I'm with you for three days, I'm. It's not you, all. You gonna get some off the record, yeah. Right. A lot of it's just we might be chilling, talking about something else. And so, if the writer, if the person would say something, really, like, say we're watching a game and and they say something like, "Man, LeBron's overrated. He ain't. He ain't all that." I would say, "Is that on the record? Can I use that?" You know, rather than just say, "Oh." And, you know, <laughs> right, and, and try to and nail him in the story, which mm -hmm. some writers would do. Mm -hmm. But then you burn that bridge forever, right? And that player is going to talk to other players. And, and, and beyond that, it's just not ethical, you know. And so I would do things like that, like ask you, can I use that, you know. And if he says no, I wouldn't use it. But that's where, you, you know, when you're, when you're with a guy for that long, you're going to get comfortable. You're going to talk about things that the, he may not necessarily think are on the record. So I would always clarify that. Well, that speaks to people trusting you, you building a relationship and, and gaining sources. And in your career at ESPN, one of the big stories that you broke, news that, that you came with, was during the summer of 2010, the free agency, where... LeBron and Wade and Bosch were all going to end up in Miami. I mean, I, as a, a lifelong Cleveland Cavaliers fan, was following you on Twitter religiously trying to get my news and my sources. Uh, I'm curious, how did that come about? Uh, was that, is that just like a lucky guess? Are you talking to the right people? They trust you. When do you feel confident putting it out? Uh, talk us through that process. Yeah, I mean, that was a that was such a different time. Like, number one, now every summer that there's a big name free agent, which is at least every other year, really mm -hmm. probably two out of three years, it's a huge story now, right? And whether it's Kevin Durant, Kawhi Leonard, whoever, and it dominates that few weeks around free agency. Back then, this was the first summer that that happened because prior to that, I mean, news would break in the summer, but – this was the first year where all eyes were on the NBA. You, we're mm -hmm. used to that in baseball, kind of hot stove. But this was like the first hot stove NBA. And when that, I remember when I was at ESPN, they, I was one of, I don't know, four or five writers and reporters that we, we had on television. And so we were all just scheduled morning, Broussard, evening, Buker, then Adonde. Like it was just scheduled throughout the days. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I had some good sources. I was breaking a lot of news. And I looked at it like this is the story of the decade. Yeah. You know, this is like 
it, I just want to crush it. I'm, I, and I really worked pretty much around the clock for those two or three weeks straight. There were lit, this is no exaggeration. There were times when I went to ESPN at like 6.30 in the morning to be on Mike and Mike in the morning and would not leave the campus until like 1, 1.30 in the morning. And because I was, I was doing, you know, I was getting a lot of news. So if I was scheduled for the morning, they would say, well, can you stay over, you know, and do the night shows? And of course I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. You know, <laughs> and then even when you were just working around the clock, but I thought it was worth it for that, that story. And so I was, I was talking to a lot of good people and I got to be honest at that time, I was not very much into Twitter and social media and I just didn't feel like you really broke a story at that time on Twitter because mm -hmm. I felt like breaking the story was you had not only where the guy's going, but why, what the thought process, what, you know, things mm -hmm. like that. But now it's kind of become transactional. You just break a transaction. So-and-so's going here and, and that's it. Right. You know, and you didn't have to, it's not so much into the whole story. And so, um, that time was was crazy. I, I was fortunate to break a lot of good news during that and um, had good sources. You know, I LeBron being from Akron, I covered – when I left – I was at the Cleveland Plain Dealer. That was my first job. But they put me in the Akron Area Bureau. So I was covering Akron Area High Schools. So LeBron – I mean, he was a kid. He was like maybe nine years old when I was working in Akron. But – I got to know people that ended up being in his inner circle at that time, mm -hmm. people that knew him, you know, people that knew me from me cover, working for the, in Cleveland, going to the high schools. He, he ended up going to or even would have gone to. I, I knew people all over the place. Mm -hmm. And then I worked for the Akron Beacon Journal and covered the cast. So through my Ohio connections, I did get to know a lot of people around LeBron. And um, so I was able to get good news there. And just the other players, like you get to know people around them uh, who can give you information. So that, that really was how it was working. And that was one of the, I mean, that was one of the highlights of my career for sure, because that took me to another level. Uh, ended up, that, that really catapulted me to when I did the NBA Countdown show that one year, Magic Johnson and Mike Wilbon and John mm -hmm. Barry. And so that was a, a great time. But I, I'll tell you this. I didn't want to live like that permanently. Yeah. Like I looked at it like this, this two or three weeks, just mm -hmm. working around the clock. And when I was done, when the story was broken and all that, I was like ready to relax. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't want to work that way 360 days a year. But ESPN kind of saw me as, oh, this, this can be our guy that's going to do that. And I really didn't want to do that. Now, Woj, who obviously does for you, he wants to do that. Yeah. Shams, they, they want to do that. I didn't want to be that guy. And so um, I really didn't go at it like that. And I ended up doing, like I said, the countdown show and uh, sideline reporting. And so um, I just, I didn't, I was like, man, I'm not, I want a life outside of the NBA. I work hard at it, but I'm not trying to be on the phones for, every single day of the year 
trying to break news. I just, you know, I got a family. <laughs> well, my, my daughter worked at ESPN, so I, I've been there in Bristol, you know, over the number, last number of years. And it's a campus, so it actually makes you stay there almost. The hotel right. across the street. It's nothing in Bristol but ESPN. So I can understand how you only stay there. And you and they, you cafeteria, food, sleeping areas, you get everything there. They, they don't want you to leave. So right. That's it's interesting how they do that. But it, it does wear you out. She was there five years, and it did begin to wear her a little bit, for sure. Yeah. Well, Chris, you mentioned your, your Ohio roots, uh, working at the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the Akron Beacon Journal, really following LeBron's career uh, as it – started in in high school and then in Cleveland with the Cavs. And as a journalist, we're taught to be impartial and just report the news. But you got to be a fan, too. I follow (laughs) you on social media. You talk about a lot of the the great players of yesterday and, you know, kids today, they just don't know how good they are. So when Cleveland wins a championship, are you impartial or is the fan in you, are, are you rooting for a team ever, too? How do you balance those two uh, both being a person uh, who has feelings and probably rooting interests for guys you've gotten to know versus being a journalist and trying to just be fair and, and impartial yeah well for me one just growing up I, I moved around a lot so I, I ended up moving to Cleveland my junior year of high school graduated from high school went to college in northeast Ohio so I I was you know I didn't grow up in Cleveland my whole life. So, and I moved in several, I lived in Indianapolis, I lived in Cincinnati, I lived in Syracuse, Des Moines, Iowa for a couple of years. So I didn't have like, you know, I wasn't, didn't have my hometown team that I ride, ride or die with. Yeah. I was, I guess you'd say I was a front runner because I went from Dr. J and the Sixers to Magic and the Lakers, to Jordan and the Bulls. As you, my, were the, you were the hopper. You hopped over every yeah. place. <laughs> you had it pretty, pretty easy. Uh, I, I, was a, I was ride or die with the Pittsburgh Steelers as a kid for some reason. But that was <laughs> outside of that, I was just, you know, I didn't really have that one team. So that, you know, growing up, I, I, I don't have those lifelong allegiances. And then, as you said, as a journalist, you want to be objective anyway. But you're right, I'm human. So what would happen is the players you got closest with. And I did like six cover stories for ESPN the magazine on LeBron, five or six. And so I got to know him and the guys around him pretty well. And so, you know, the guys you know, you like, you want to see them do well. It's just mm-hmm. human nature if they were good to you. And so there's that aspect. But for me, with Cleveland, when LeBron, my parents still live in Cleveland. And so when the, when the Cavs won the lottery in 2003, even before the draft, yeah. once they won the lottery, my parents went out and got season tickets mm. the next day or that night or whatever. And so that really was great for me because it gave my parents something, to, a hobby to do together. Mm-hmm. They were going to the games all the time. And I just saw, thought it was great. I loved what it did for my parents. And so that made me, in addition to being from Cleveland, you know, kind of pull for the Cavs. And, um, you know, it was great to see him win the championship. I'll tell you what is interesting, because I was there a lot in LeBron's first stint with the Cavs. Yep. And the atmosphere in that arena was as good as anywhere in the league. It was definitely one of the top five atmospheres in the league, if not number one. Mm-hmm. And when he left 
and came back, it was, it was still good when he came back, but it was never the same. It was not quite the same. Even when they won it, it was almost, I guess, somebody, uh, my partner Rob Parker compared it to if you were in a relationship with a woman and she cheated on you. And then, you know, you guys worked it out later and Come got back. back together. It's still, though, not quite what it used to be. You know what I mean? That age of yeah. innocence. And that's how it was. Because, look, again, it was still great when they won it and sure. when LeBron came back. But it didn't match what it was when he was there at the beginning of his career because it was crazy. I, I agree. I use that same analogy, too. I, I honestly have. I said it was like our high school sweetheart. Like, we fell in love. This was meant to be in that initial run with LeBron for Cleveland fans. And then she left. It's like he he broke up with me on prom night, you know, right, in front right, of everybody right. and broke my heart. But then I've been pretty lonely for four years, and I've kind of been <laughs> a loser, and I haven't done much. So I was desperate to take her back, but I felt the pressure even more. We got to make it work, and, and yeah. it did. But, yes, it was a different vibe for sure, for sure. Yeah. So, so I, I always pose this question when I think about the draft, you know, just going back to Magic Johnson going to the Lakers, right? Larry Bird going to the, the Celtics. Patrick Ewing going to the Knicks. <laughs> Michael Jordan going to the Bulls, but that was you know kind of a, a later pick. LeBron James going to Cleveland. Do you think the draft is – I mean, the, the league is smart, right. right? They didn't trade Chris Paul to the Lakers. He went to the Clippers, right? So is it fixed, in your opinion, or the league is so smart that the balls just come out that way? <laughs> you know? Which one, in my opinion, you know, it's just ironic how it happened, right? Right. I mean, the way it happened in the '80s, man. And I, for, to answer you, and I, I'll kind of go around, go over all this, but I don't think it's fixed. But when you do look at the '80s, because remember, Kareem, as great as he was in LA, they missed the playoffs one year. Yep, yep. I think they had been swept by the Blazers the year before Magic got there, I believe. And uh, of course, the Celtics had fallen off. Right. And so now Burr, remember, he was drafted when he still had a year left in high school or in college. college you know, it was strange yeah, yeah. back then how they could do it. Um, but for the Lakers to get magic, it just – and you couldn't have picked a better place for him. No. It just seemed – yeah, it, it seemed strange. But here's, here's what I'll say to the question of is it fixed, because mainly people deal with the lottery because that's when, you know, mm. everything changed. I, I don't think it is, and here's why I say that. Because you're right, Patrick Ewing went to the Knicks. LeBron goes to Cleveland. But there were the Knicks after Ewing went down. You know that. And there were many years, because I was writing in New York at that time, at the New York Times, where, like, Yao Ming was, was in the draft. And the Knicks needed somebody and needed something. And the league, there, whether it was Yao or there were other great players, you know, when Chris Webber's coming out or when Penny Hardaway or other – like, there were all these chances for the league to give the Knicks some life, mainly in the, the after Ewing, 2000s, and right. they never won the lottery. You know, um, LeBron, yeah, it was nice that he went to Cleveland, which was uh, his hometown, but it would have been better for the league if he had gone to New York. You know, so they had opportunities where they could have really finagled things and finessed things. The league offices in New York, it would have been easy for them to, you know, get a guy there. And they never did. So I think if things were fixed, the Knicks would have won a lottery with one of those 
you know, no, no, no miss, you know, guys, um, can't miss guys. And, mm-hmm. and it would have revitalized the Knicks. So, yeah, I, I so I don't think it is. Um, <laughs> but it's okay. funny because the NBA has more conspiracy theories than any of the other leagues. Oh, yeah. You know, for sure. Anybody. Uh, we we actually, you know, we're going to have on uh, NBA ref Kenny Mauer is going to be joining us uh, next week and, you know, talking to him in the past about yeah, oh, the, the we want it to go seven games. See, they, the league wants it to go longer. There's you hear about conspiracies with that. Like, uh, well, the Donaghy, I mean, that's that is what it is. Right. And, right. and I, I mean, if any of us that watch that game when it was I think it was game six. When the Kings were about looked like they were going to close out the Lakers, I, I think it was right. it was an elimination game, and the Lakers just started going to the free throw line. It was and that was one of the games Donaghy ref, oh. and it was crazy. I mean, it was obvious that something was going on. Mm-hmm. So I think, and you know, in in this sport, and, and well, in ba- baseball too, I guess, but refereeing plays a huge role. Yeah. You know, and so because you know any. You can call a foul almost every play, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it, some things like that are hard to just get away from. But as far as the lottery, I, I do think it's it's legit. Yeah, I, I do too. I do too. But you know, well, we we could debate this forever. And the conspiracies <laughs> help the popularity of the league grow because it's another thing for all of us to talk about, you know, right. and wonder. And with the NBA coming back, we, we alluded to that. It's about to kick off. We are so, so uh, excited for this, finally. There's, there's been now three months without basketball. So, Chris, as someone who has uh, great sources still and who follows the league so closely, what are you most looking forward to? Uh, there's so many storylines in the bubble in Orlando, but what, what players, what teams, um, what storylines are you most excited about as we bring – basketball back here yeah i mean there look what makes the nba i think what's driven the popularity are the storylines you know like when lebron went to miami or durant goes to golden state these storylines are tremendous and it, it, it it does draw us all in so i think some of the more intriguing ones obviously there's lebron his quest to win his fourth ring and be the first player to lead you know three different franchises to the championship in a year where you had the tragic death of Kobe Bryant, the coronavirus. So it's just, it would be amazing if he could bring that title to LA in this season. So that's one of them. And I think right next door or down the hall, the Clippers, um, who I actually, they're my pick to win it. Uh, But the Clippers can Kawhi, I mean, if he is able to lead them to the championship, having gone to Toronto, another franchise that had never won it and, and lead them to back-to-back championships teams that had never won or even been to the finals, that would be amazing. Um, so that's another storyline. Uh, he could be the first player to lead three different teams. Uh, I mean, you, I, I'll give him that. Obviously, when he was in San Antonio, it wasn't his team. Sure. Uh, that year, I think they won in 2014. He averaged 12 points, but he was the MVP of the finals. Finals MVP. Yeah, so – there, you have those. I'm also interested in Philadelphia. They were my preseason pick in the East. Now I, I think Milwaukee will win it. But they're intriguing, and now they're going to play Shake Milton at the point and Ben Simmons at the four next to Embiid. And, Ralph, like, I, I believe if I were to do that, I would, I would almost go old school and play both of those guys around the paint 
Maybe one's on the high post. You know, at times they're on the block picking for one another, you know, flashing, things like that. And then have the shooters around them, kind of like Houston did with, with Akeem when they won it in the mid-'90s. Um, but I, I don't think they'll do that. I think they'll try to play like today's teams play and spread the floor more. And that will force Embiid out to the three-point line, which I don't like because yeah, I, I don't think like the butter is in the box. And so uh, I'm interested to see how they play and does it work because they have not figured out how to maximize their two best players together, Simmons and Embiid. And that's going to be their downfall to that coaching staff. If they go out early, I think Brett Brown will probably get fired. And so um, I'm interested to see what they can do. Houston is just fun. I don't think they can win it, but the small ball, Westbrook, Harden, that dynamic, um, they're, they're like, you know, a hoop, but they can't win it. Right, <laughs> Not in my either. opinion. But um, some people think they could shock some people in this strange time. It's, we had Kenny Smith from TNT on our radio show last week, and he just shocked us by saying he thinks Denver or Dallas is going to win it oh, wow. because of the youth. He thinks a young team's going to benefit more from the break than older teams. So I, I think that – I don't see that happening. Yeah. But um, it, it all of it's going to be intriguing because we haven't had something like this happen. So maybe LeBron, does he come back rested or does he come back rusty? Mm-hmm. You know, well, knowing LeBron, he's in. He's going to be in shape. He's going to right. be ready. He, he's playing every night. He's doing something, you know, that – if the gym wasn't open, he was finding the gym somewhere. Because, yeah. I mean, you've got to be, I mean, amazing shape for 18, 19 years. How do you do that, right? With no injuries. So he's going to be in amazing, amazing shape. I've seen some video clips of him as well. He's working out in the gym and doing that way. But, and he's hungry to get, you know, he needs yeah. to get that win in short. But I, I'm curious your, your opinion that MB, I mean, I think that's a great move for Philadelphia if they do go to the low post because I'm a low post type of fan because the defense is not going to be able to adjust. They're not prepared for that low post draw right. and kick. Let, as long as they have a shooter out there, and throwing it out to Simmons is obviously not the key, but they have a couple of shooters out there now that may be able to do that. If they can counterpunch and do that, they do have a shot to win in the East Coast. And B is a monster if he wants to play every night. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, um, you, Shake Milton's been great from three. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. and so you got – and Josh Richardson, he hasn't been great, but he's a decent shooter. And Tobias Harris can shoot it. So you could kind of put three guys on the line – and I would I, – I, Simmons, they want to put down by the basket. But – and you know this, Rob, like there's no – and I, you play with a king. Yeah. And obviously at times you're, you're obviously at the high post. But there's this – they teams seem to feel you can't have two guys near the paint nowadays. And I just don't agree with that. Yeah. And, you know, teams now feel like coaches and players. My goodness, if one person's in the paint on the block with a defender there – the lanes clogged. You know, I'm like, right. back in the 80s and 90s, even me playing at the lower levels I played, when you could drive, you drove to the basket and there were six or seven guys in there. You had to know how to finish in traffic. And so I don't believe, like, I think they should go old school and have those two guys around the basket or, or at least around the paint and make teams defend. I think, look, I think Zion is great, but I think one of the reasons he's so dominant at least he has been in his short time, is because defenders don't really know how to guard in the post right. anymore. Because he doesn't have moves, really. No. He's just a yeah. leaper. He's strong. You know, um, and so 
and he even uses really the one hand, yeah. you know. And so, but guys don't know how to def- post defend anymore. So I think Embiid and Simmons could really do damage and then pass it out when they're double or triple team. So I would like to see them do that, but I'm skeptical. I don't know if they will, but I think that would be their best chance. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, just simming down on the post, rebounding and and, and doing his thing because he can rebound, he can run, and they get on the break a little bit. Both of them can run, right? And get you know, and then then the beef can get his three pointer off every time he wants to feel like he can do that. But <laughs> you know, seven foot guy shooting three pointers is kind of weird for me, but it's good. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well. One thing I'm a little concerned about when it comes to Philadelphia is their depth, and we'll see how important depth is in in this NBA restart. I imagine that's one of the reasons you like the LA Clippers. They're one of the deepest teams, if not the deepest team in the NBA. One thing that everyone's going to be adjusting to is playing with no fans in attendance, really taking home court advantage out the window. So while the Milwaukee Bucks have worked hard for that number one seed in the East, they're not going to really have a home court advantage. What teams might be affected the most by playing without fans? And what guys you think maybe it won't affect? Maybe like a, a Kawhi Leonard. Right. I mean, Kawhi just doesn't show any emotion. So I think yeah. it will totally be cool. I think LeBron will be fine. Um, but it'll be interesting. There will be some guys that are affected positively or negatively like Mm -hmm. some guys won't be able to play off of that rush they get from the fans maybe guys coming off the bench but then other guys you know this Ralph there's always practice players right that are great in practice but can't do it in the game yeah maybe some guys without the fans there they'll be a little more comfortable maybe it'll be better I'm not predicting it but it's possible um but I think team wise the Lakers, I think it hurts more than anybody because if they, you know, I, I've assumed they're going to meet the Clippers in the conference finals. Mm-hmm. And had they played in L.A., they would have had home court advantage every game. You're right. Man. Every game. At least 60% of the crowd would have been Lakers fans, even with the Clippers home games. Yep. So I think that would have been huge. Maybe six or seven games they have the home court. Whereas now, they don't have it. It's neutral. And so I think that's a big loss for the Lakers. And typically a lot of times it's role players that kind of benefit from the crowd. And so I think it could hurt their role players, their depth. They don't have as much depth as the Clippers. So I I think the Lakers are the team that's going to be hurt most by that. Do you you really think this bubble thing is going to work? I mean, obviously all would love it to work, but I mean, they got so much money, so much infrastructure, Hotel down in, in in Orlando. It's kind of crazy to watch it, but us knowing the NBA, it's going to be magical to watch them play it, right? And then you got the jerseys with different names on their back. We'll talk about that a little bit. But do you really think this thing is going to going to go go? Because if it's you know you got guys testing positive right now, you know trying to figure it out they may play, may not play. Guys not wanting to play. Referees not going. I mean, it's a lot of stuff going on in the sports world today, but do we really think they're going to get this off? And then if it goes bad, do they shut it down? I, I definitely think they'll shut it down if it goes bad. I Look, we know it's about money on both sides. The, the, mm-hmm. the owners want to get the money that they can from the TV revenue, and the players know that if they don't play, the cap will plummet, right? right. And then I know that play, a lot of players are fearful that the owners will lock them out for the next season if they don't play. So they're protecting their future money as well, which I get. 
But I do think Adam Silver legitimately cares enough about the players that if it gets out of hand as far as the positive test, I do think he'll shut it down. He's even alluded to that, that he'll shut it down. So that's really the thing. And, you know, you've already had a few guys kind of sneak out and they haven't even been away from the girls that long. So um, that's the scary. And, you know, Rob, I mean, when you're 20-something, you just don't think with the same outlook that you do as an older person. And when you give 20-somethings that type of money, the type of prestige they have, they're used to being able to do and get whatever they want. They're used to people treating them like kings. Um, It's – you would just think that some guys are going to try to get out. But I know, like, the NBA told me there's basically one way in and one way out. I mean, maybe there's some little side things people can try to sneak. But it's basically one way in and one way out. So I don't think you're going to be able to get out and get away with it. And Mm -hmm. so – and, you know, the 10 days in your room, I think they're doing that to really show guys, look, we're serious. And that would be terrible to have to sit in your room for 10 days. And so, you know, if I just hope guys will adhere to the rules and that they can make it. But, you know, you obviously Florida's a hot spot and you got the workers coming in and out. Right. So it just seems like uh, there could easily be an outbreak. And um, outlook, I think even if they can't finish the season, I'm not going to blame the NBA. I'll give them credit for trying. For trying yes. Fauci has said even they've done pretty much the best they can do. Mm-hmm. And so you give it a try and just hope it works. Yeah, you got – I mean, you got to try it sooner or later. Right. Baseball, football – I mean, everybody's got to try it. But basketball is probably that one that's, you know, the monster that can pull it off, especially in the NBA with the NBA entertainment. The weirdest thing that I find that the player is you're going to hear the ball bouncing, the screeching of the tennis shoes, and somebody's right. going to talk some noise that they better mm-hmm. get ready for TV because it's going to be – it's going to be – it could be physical. It could be – and competitive you know, after everybody gets used to it. That'll be fun to hear the comments. And, I mean, I hope guys, you know, I mean, I hope guys can keep it clean. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Glad to have that delay. Yeah, beep, right. Beep, right. Beep it I mean, so, right. They're going to be beeps all over the place. But that'll be fun. I mean, for me, covering the league, now, you know, they kind of try to move the media away from the court a little more. But when I first started covering the league, we would sit right there at press row. At, you know, and so being down, it's a different game on that level. Not only seeing the players up close, but hearing the talk and things like that. So that would be a great experience for the fans. Um, there are things of this that, that could be great to watch. I've enjoyed, I've been watching a lot of boxing on ESPN with the top rank. And they're in there pretty much, you know, there's no audience, obviously. And that's been exciting, you know, so... I, MMA, you can hear some of the, you know, the blows and hear the talking. So I do think that could be fun for the fans. Yeah. So if you if you had the opportunity to go, would you go to the bubble and spend three months sequestered like that? If I had the choice, I would, you know, obviously I'm at a level in my career where I don't have to. And so I would say no just because I want to be – I'd rather be with my family uh, and for my job with the TV and radio, I can do it from home. But, yeah, if I was a younger guy in my career and I was still at that stage where I was reporting and sideline reporting even, then, you know, I would have went. I mean, you may be, like, be in a position where you should go if you want to advance your career. So, fortunately, I'm not at that stage anymore. But 
Um, I'm happy to be where I'm at doing it because, you know, one of the benefits for being down there would be that you would get that extra time with the players and get to know them better. And, but you're really not even going to be able to do that, you know. So, yeah. yeah, so that I'd rather be – I'm happy being where I'm at, you know, and being able to just watch it on TV. Yeah, it's not a bad spot to be. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is definitely historic. Never has this ever happened before, and hopefully never again will there be anything like this. Uh, I have a feeling maybe 10, 20 years from now, just as we gather this summer to watch The Last Dance, we might gather to watch The Bubble, the documentary on on what took place in the summer of 2020. Um, well, Chris, now you're known for you know having a lot of hot takes, being a personality, an analyst, a commentator. I'm going to put you on the spot. What is your NBA Finals predictions and who will be the champion, assuming it all moves forward and goes smoothly and, and we are able to crown an NBA champion in 2020? I feel confident about the Clippers in the West. I mean, I give the Lakers a shot. But I do think the Clippers will win. And the East, I'm a little more little shaker on. I think Boston's going to be tough uh, with their coaching, with their youth, if they're healthy, if Kimball Walker can stay healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miami, I think, could pull off an upset. But I don't think see them winning the East. But I could see them spoiling it for somebody else. Yeah. Toronto, I think, is tough. But I, I don't think they can win the East. They play really hard. Uh, Nick Nurse is a very good coach, yeah. but they haven't played as well against the top teams. So I, I think that I don't think they can win it. Like I, I mentioned Philly already as a dark horse, mm-hmm. but I'll go with Milwaukee. I know that's not going out on too much of a limb, but I'll go with Milwaukee in the East, and then I'll go with uh, the Clippers to win it all over Milwaukee. I would love to see – I really would enjoy seeing Philadelphia in the mm-hmm. finals. I, I just think they're, you know, with, with MB's personality, with those two young guys, they're fun. And if they get to the finals, that would mean that they've been playing well. So I would love to see Philly get there, but I think I'm going to go with the Clippers over the Bucks. Ralph, what do you think? Do you have a prediction? Uh, you know, I just – I'm a LeBron fan, you know. So it, with, with uh, Anthony Davis and the crew, they, they got to have another gear somewhere that most people don't have. The quad special. I guarantee you. I don't know if you have enough guys around you that have that extra gear. But I just know LeBron, is, is, he's got to be there chomping at the bit, knowing his mentality, knowing his work ethic. And anybody around him is going to be affected by that. You know, Kuzman to Anthony Davis to everybody around him. Now, you know, with Rondo out is the issue. Because um, right. they're going to need somebody. Playoff to, Rondo is real. Yes, he's the real deal. You look at his numbers, yeah. it's like crazy. It's the real deal. So yeah. I think if they, they, they have to figure it out, I don't like uh, – uh, JR uh, on their team uh, from the Cleveland days, although maybe LeBron can help him understand that. But uh, if Rondo was there, I would say they have a 100% shot, but I, I don't count LeBron out. You know, I, just I can't. think AD is the key. Yeah, yeah absolutely. LeBron's going to play well. He's going to yeah. get 27, 28, 9, and 9 or something like that. I don't think he'll totally take over the Clippers series because they've got Kawhi, Paul George, you know, Marcus Morris, that they can kind of throw on him. I think he'll play well, but, you know, they'll they'll be able to keep him from just totally dominating. And I think AD, they don't really have a matchup for him. You know, you got Montrez Harrell, you got Zubac, but he, he's got answers for those guys, mm-hmm. Marcus Morris. And so I think in the fourth quarters, Davis is going to have to really be an aggressive go-to guy 
And I didn't, if he does it, I think they can win. But I didn't see it in the regular season. Like, he averaged 26 against them in the three games. But he only scored eight points in 21 fourth quarter minutes in those three games against the Clippers. So I, I've been saying all year, they need to groom him to be a fourth quarter monster. And they really didn't do it until kind of the last month of the season. And so I think he's the key. Um, but, you know, we'll see if he can do it. If he, if he can become that beast that we kind of all have been waiting for him yeah. to be, then, yeah, I think the Lakers got a great chance. Absolutely. Well, it's exciting. It's exciting to have basketball to talk about. Uh, as Ralph and I always say, it's just great to have sports back because sports really is the great unifier in this country. It brings people together of all different races, religions, socioeconomic statuses. And uh, even though fans won't be able to be there in attendance, we'll all be watching. We'll all be rooting for our favorite teams and our favorite players. And that's really what this country needs right now. And I'd like to use that to segue into some of the work that you do, Chris, uh, away from your broadcasting career, away from sports. I know you're very active in your community. Uh, You've founded the King Movement, and I'd love if you could just tell us a little bit more about uh, that side of your life and why it's so important to you. Well, thank, thank you for bringing it up. Uh, the King Movement is it's a men's movement where we really try to help young boys and men become all they can be, like reach their God-given potential. And um, it's for all men, but we work particularly or especially with uh, African-American boys and men and so many, you know, we do a lot of mentorship and so many young African-American men don't have the father in their home or father figure. So we want to kind of step in and fill that space. And, you know, nowadays where, you know, there are a lot of people concerned about African-American, you know, trying to contribute to African-American causes and stuff. And, and that's great. And I think we definitely need uh, economic educational and, and criminal justice reform in the country. Um, but also, we have to also pour into the lives of these young brothers who really, because of so many of the, so much of the systemic racism, they've been damaged, you know, in the inner cities. There are a lot of inner cities where it's like 80 to 90% of the families in inner cities don't really have men there. And so you got a lot of boys growing up without those positive role models. So we step in and we want to try to, you know, work with young guys to help build the character, the integrity, um, the, the, the life skills that you need to excel uh, in this society. So we do a lot of that. And then, you know, it's also just, um, you know, male bonding is important. That's one of the best things about playing a sport. And so we, it's a Christian brotherhood. So we're trying to live Christ-like. So it's good to have other men that we can, you know, that are trying to live that life as well. And so we have chapters throughout the country and um, we work, do work in the communities. And uh, we feel like if we can be the men that God's called us to be, that'll strengthen our families, our communities, and ultimately our, our nation. How do you feel? I mean, so I mean, I've read some of that information and I'll, I'm going to get you connected to um, it's, it's a couple of organizations that I work with as well. Uh, one is Big Picture Learning. They have 70 some chapters around the country. I did some stuff with them, not recently. But the NBA with Black Lives Matters, 
naming of the jersey. We mentioned this before. This has been a, a crazy, crazy year with you know, Kobe Bryant, uh, the pandemic, and this whole George Floyd stuff as well. The stuff you do, I'm sure you've seen it maybe escalate a little bit kind of with what's going on. I always think that if you put Magic, Michael, LeBron, the big boys in a room, everybody's on this on a different island, right? So to unify our, our, our brothers out there, right, to come under one accord, that's hard to do in, in, in our race and culture. And, and it, it baffles me that we, we can't do that. And, and what, do you see that the way I feel it or see it? But LeBron's doing this great stuff with the voting. You know, Magic's doing this stuff with his $100 million loans. Michael's doing this 100 stuff with $100 million for $10 million a year. Where is it going? We're going to find out. But if I could ever get them together in one room, and say, look, guys, come on, let's pull together and make an impact. We probably could rule the world in some respects, but why? I mean, why don't we do that, in, in your opinion? Or what, I think the- that's a, a great question, Ralph. And and I have felt the same way. I, look, there's first of all, I do think I think black athletes, and to a lesser degree, entertainers, but black athletes have more power than any other black people in the country to change America because they are of their wealth, number one, but also their connections to corporate America through their endorsements, marketing. Um, and, and it's not even using their money, but the connections is a big part of it. They're beloved by all Americans of all race. You know, white kids grow up idolizing the black athletes uh, and they're irreplaceable. They are, you know, you can find a, a black or a white journalist to replace a black one or a white accountant or a white lawyer, dentist. You can't replace LeBron James. You can't replace Ezekiel Elliott, uh, Pat Mahomes now. You can't replace, you know, Michael Jordan, as you said. So they have a leverage that no other African-American, I even think even politicians don't have. And so I, I'll give you an example. If when Colin Kaepernick first began kneeling for the national anthem, if half of the black players in the NFL, let alone all of them, had said, we're not playing another down until Kaepernick's back in the league because he deserves to be in the league. He's good enough. We see some of the other guys you're signing. They wouldn't have had to miss a game. He would be back in the league immediately. We saw it with college. The uh, players at the University of Missouri football sat out three day, within three days the demands were met and they didn't miss a game you know we've seen it even even now with some of the college players making demands so there's that I, that's the power that they have within society um number two ralph i actually you know this that in every field of endeavor essentially there's a black advocacy group there's a national association of black journalists there's the National Medical Association, which is black doctors, black lawyers association, accountants, engineers, every field, except athletes and entertainers who are, this is sadly, but if you look at the Forbes list of black wealthiest African-Americans, most of them made it through sports or entertainment. Whether even Oprah is entertainment, Bob Johnson, not an entertainer, but he made it through BET. Like, it's sports entertainment, Jay-Z, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, and then you've got a few other guys through real estate or, or business or something like Robert Smith. But for the most part, it's athletes and entertainers. 
And yet they don't, we don't have that black advocacy group. I actually came up with a, a proposal for a um, association of African-American athletes where you would be able to bring, like you said, bring some of the athletes together and talk about black issues. And it's not so much how it can help the athletes because they have their different players associations, but it's more so how could the black athletes use their resources, again, their connections to corporate America, their wealth, their influence, their, you know, to positively impact the masses of black people. So even like you said, what LeBron is doing, He's in Akron. He's got these kids, like a thousand kids in his school system, I believe. And they all, once they get through it, will get scholarships to the University of Akron. Mm -hmm. I would love to see 50 athletes doing that. Absolutely. You know, like Steph could do it in Charlotte. Uh, Draymond Green could do it in Michigan, where he's from. Like, Or you do it with the team you play with. But if you get the university where you're from, to do the same thing Akron's doing for LeBron. You know, if you, if Nike, if you're such a great player that Nike or McDonald's wants you, I would say, look at McDonald's and say, okay, you want me to endorse you. How many of your franchises are owned by African-Americans? Yep. Is it 13%, which is our population? Oh, it's only 4%? Well, let's work within five years, get it up to 8%. Within 10 years, up to 30 You know, like, the leverage you have, and even the companies, Nike, Nike seems, I think they got a pretty diverse workforce, but let's say somebody doesn't have a diverse workforce, but they want you to endorse their product. You can say, well, I want you to hire more African-Americans. Oh, we can't find them. They're not, you're not qualified. We'll start a management trainee program for them coming out of college. You know, things, those are ways I'm, I say athletes can use their leverage to force systemic change. But if, they, if we had that type of group, Ralph, then you could really talk about these black issues because the Players Association, obviously in the NBA, it's mostly black, but you still are representing white players and players from inter, international. So you can't just make it to talk about black issues. Sometimes, but not solely. Whereas this type of group where that's specifically the, the uh, objective, you could do that. Now, let me, let me say this before I, I close with that. I've always felt, Ralph, that America was always going to just be a lot of racism and white supremacy. And so we did need to do things like I just mentioned, like unite, come together, and help our people, which we still should do. Obviously, always should do that. But now I got to admit, for the first time in my life, seeing the number of white protesters, seeing the whites tearing down the Confederate statue, seeing the white people in the military saying, we need to change these names of these military bases that are named after Confederate soldiers. I do feel more optimism than I've ever felt about their really, and, and even North Carolina, just yesterday the news came out that one of their counties was uh, gonna give reparations to African-Americans. And obviously that's on the Democratic, some of the Democratic candidates had talked about reparations. The percentage of Americans thinking that we should have reparations is rising. It's now the 29% of all Americans. 
it's 45% of millennials. So I see a change coming. And then it's made me think, it's made me think, you know, while I, you always want your athletes to be philanthropic and, and do things for the community, it really should be the government and corporations. It shouldn't be on the athletes to do it. I've just felt like since nobody else going to do it, our athletes, our wealthiest blacks need to do it. But now I'm looking at it more as the government can make real systemic changes that'll help us. And the corporations that benefited from slavery should make changes. I'll give you an example. Virtually all of the colleges, not all, but most of them that were created before the Civil War benefited from slavery. And, main, and especially the Ivy League schools. So I'm saying, how about an Ivy League school that, and they've admitted it, but that benefit from slavery gives a certain percentage of your endowment to an HBCU. Absolutely. So like the, there's 102 HBCUs. They have a combined endowment of $2.1 billion. Harvard alone has an endowment of $40 billion. Wow. So give some of that to, I'm not saying half of it. I'm, I'm talking about, I don't know the percentage myself, mm. but, you know, let the people work it out, the economists. But 2% to a Howard, you know, or, or and then Yale gives 2% to a Spelman or whatever it may be. But things like that can lead to systemic change. So um, I'm actually working um, with Ice Cube, the, the rapper, who, Obviously, you see his business, uh, what he's parlayed his rap career into, the big three and, and, and his movies and his production company. He's very smart. We've been working on uh, some, some legislation, like some policy proposals. And we've got, it's, it's not me and Ice Cube sitting here coming up with all the ideas. <laughs> we got some economists. Uh, we've got some uh, financial people that some have worked on Wall Street. We've got some educators uh, looking at these things and come helping us with ideas. And so we're trying to put together some proposals because it needs to go to the next level. You can't protest forever. Ultimately, we want to get back to some sense of normalcy and a normalcy where we get rid of racism and it's true equality. And so that's what we're kind of, that's the next step. And so we're kind of trying to do that and so you'll hear about more of it. He's going to be on some shows talking about it. But um, that's what, you know, I, that's a long-winded answer to what you <laughs> No, I, lo- I love it. I love it because I, I think about uh, what LeBron has done in, 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 in the Ohio market in Akron. But also David Robinson is doing big things in the market. He got 97 schools. He raised $197 million last year for his school. So he has the model. The model is there. Mm-hmm. We just don't connect together with that right. model yet. And we got to find a way to make that connection, which is, which is amazing. And I do agree with the corporate perspective and understanding that and how to build that corporate relationship in the community as well. I talked to people like the likes of Phil Ford, Walter Davis, and all the guys that I played with or against. I said, God, look, you were iconic when you played. You were number one picks when you played, but now you're only iconic in your neighborhood. Yeah. And so they understand that. They say, Ralph, you know, how do we monetize that? How do we, we we go to all these charitable events? We do these car shows. You know, we, we get that all the time. So there's ways in, to create that and be able to monetize their brand locally and band together. We just don't do it yet. So we'll get together on that. 
And I actually, I'm going to do a roundtable show as well, and we'll bring you, and we got Kenny Meyer, and maybe get Ice Cube or somebody else to do yeah. this big roundtable on the show, and then highlight that so people can understand it. And we'll get all these guys together to make this thing work. So I appreciate those comics, because they, they resonate with me extremely hard in my little town of Harrisonburg, Virginia. We see it every day here. I got Confederate yeah. flags on trucks, and I got a farm here. I see the trucks go by with the Confederate flag with a gun in the back. So you got to be on point. I was on my farm uh, last week and I heard gunshots in the field. Wow. And I'm like, oh, what, what's going on? So I, I went behind the barn. I worked behind there. My, my uncle said, oh, I just let somebody go over there and shoot. I'm like, okay, at least tell me that <laughs> so that I understand what's in the field. But I do appreciate those words. That, that's, that, that's an amazing dialogue. So I commend you on what you're doing. Absolutely. And, and Chris, you know, racism is not, it's taught. No one's born racist. And I do have hope that conversations like this are happening, that actions are, are, are happening, that we are taking things from not only protests that are, are all people, they're white people, there's people, Asians, there's yeah. African-Americans, people from all different races come together. Enough is enough. And, and there's hope that this younger generation uh, is, is fed up with these old ideals and the old way that it used to be. So uh, I'm, I'm hopeful for the future and thankful for all the work that uh, you are doing uh, as, as a part of it too, to pave that way. And um, we'll leave you with one last thing here. It's something that we like to do on Center Court. It's a segment called Pay Homage, where we give you a chance to give a shout out, a special thank you to pay homage to someone who had a big impact on your life to pave the way to get you to where you are today. It could be a friend, a relative, a family member. Uh, it could be uh, uh, someone you've never met before, but you just idolize their career. Is there someone that you want to pay homage to who meant a lot to you and your life and your career? I, I'm going to say my father, you know, um, and my parents now, in October, they'll be 55 years married. So, um, you know, my father, you know, growing up as a kid, you kind of take it for granted. But then, you know, especially when I was growing up, a lot of kids, you know, there were fatherlessness wasn't as bad. Um, but now seeing the fatherlessness, I realize how thankful, you know, how lucky I was and fortunate I was to have my father there. And he helped me with my homework. He co coached me in my, all the three sports, football, basketball, and baseball. And uh, so I pay homage to him. And Ralph, I know when I was growing up, um, and I'm like, even Cincinnati in a, in a, in a black neighborhood, Indianapolis, a, a largely black neighborhood, I didn't even, I don't even remember hearing the word mentor. Yep. There were, everybody had their fathers. I'm talking yep. about blacks, you know what I mean? Like it was just, everybody, it was like seeing grass on the lawn. Like it was taken for granted that their fathers were there for the most part. And now, I think since then, and there are a lot of systemic things that have contributed to it. It's not just on uh, individuals. That's a part of it. But um, I'm just thankful now when I, because uh, he shaped me, obviously, so much of my life. Um, so I'll shout him out because I, I had I was blessed with uh, a blessing that a lot of people don't have. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, you, had, you had, not only had your dad, but you had your uncles, aunts, everybody right. in the neighborhood that would, you know, beat your tail if you got out of the lawn and kept you as united as you could. So I, I had that in my neighborhood. It was amazing. I had uncles that played pitched and played baseball. They would take me out. My dad would work. My mom would work. So it's very special to hear that. So you're right. And so I'm glad it's your, your father. I'm sure he was and still is instrumental in my life. Mine are 84 and 82, been married 62 years. So I understand wow. that. Wow. 
Wow, that's great, man. That's great. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, Chris, thank you so much for, for coming on, chatting with us. It was great to talk NBA with you, but also to get to know you a little bit better uh, as a person and to hear about your incredible career uh, covering the NBA and sports and profiling some of uh, the biggest athletes and, and names of our generation. So thank you. We really appreciate your time and we can't wait to, to have you back again, hopefully sometime soon. Thank you, guys, man. This was great. Wow. Well, that was great chatting with the legendary Chris Broussard. He's a great reporter. He's done excellent work covering the NBA, and it was great to get to know a little bit about him uh, and his career, not just his insights on the game of basketball. Yeah, I mean, I've been knowing Chris for many, many years, obviously, through the NBA and being an analyst and writer and all the things he's known. I've been on his show a couple of times when I was in L.A. and just recently uh, a week ago with you know, on his Fox Sports show. So great guy, knows the game well, seen it evolve over the years from the Michael Jordan to LeBron James to Magic to myself. So it was amazing to see his insight and his growth mm -hmm. and what he does today in the market with the King movement and all the stuff he's doing on and off the court, behind the mic, behind the writing pen to how it evolved. Because, you know, when he came up, it was only a couple ways to get into that world. And now there's many different ways. So with a very good interview insightful and uh we'll get him back well that's getting back sooner or later especially after the, the season is a little bit further down the road absolutely i'd love to hear his thoughts and see if his predictions come true he's predicting the clippers over the bucks in the finals ralph what are your predictions as the nba is about to tip off in just two days well it was interesting to see him pick those two teams right i love Kawhi, i know his demeanor how they play i'm still a big lebron fan that i alluded to in the, in the interview but I think it's going to be LeBron against the Greek freak. I think mm -hmm. the league wants that. Obviously, it might not be uh, biased with that. But I think uh, it'd be good for people to watch those two go up against each other. I'm still concerned about Rondo uh, being injured with the Lakers. I think he would be very key in the playoffs for them. But knowing the Lakers, they'll pull something off, and we'll see what happens. But I'll say that, but I think the Greek freak will win. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I'm okay. going to Milwaukee. Milwaukee. Yeah, Look I'm at that. Milwaukee. Well that would be an interesting storyline. You got the two leading MVP candidates going head to head. The All Star Game this year, Team LeBron versus Team Giannis. Uh, it would be fantastic to have arguably the two biggest stars in the NBA going head to head in the finals. And uh, all the storylines with the Lakers, just everything that they've been through during this uh, season with the tragic death of Kobe Bryant Absolutely. coming back and LeBron in year 17 still at the top of his game. Uh, it will be awesome to watch. Uh, you know, I, I think, though, that the Western Conference Finals are going to find our winner. Whoever survives between the Clippers and the Lakers, that will be our champion. And I, I kind of agree with Chris. I think the Clippers have more depth, and I would give the slight edge to them. And something that Chris brought up, I didn't think about, the Lakers, of anyone, they're probably going to be affected the most by not having a home court advantage because I go to a lot of Clipper games here in L.A. Anytime they play the Lakers, it feels like a Laker home game. It's easier to, if you're a Laker fan to get oh, tickets to the Clipper home game than, than the Lakers. So they are, instead of having a six, seven home games, they're going to have all these games on a neutral site. It'll be... Uh, we'll see if that if that affects them. It might not affect LeBron, but maybe the role players, maybe Anthony Davis. We'll we'll see. Well, we'll see what happens. It'll be interesting to watch. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Me too. All right. Well, we'll see if your predictions come true. You're picking the Bucks to win it all. Uh, let me ask you this: while we're talking about the Bucks and Giannis, 
I mean, have you ever in your career seen a player like that? They call him the freak because the things he can do at his size and his length. Could you imagine in your prime guarding a guy like that? How would you tackle playing against well, Giannis? One, in, in my prime, he wouldn't have been able to do all that. He wouldn't have been able to come down through the lane. They wouldn't let him play outside like that. But if they did... You know, we're going to have Rick Mahorn or somebody come over and hit him in the head, you know, and he wouldn't have came down the lane like that. This, the game has changed for God to be able to do that. So he can do that now. He's strong. He got stronger. He built his body. He built a game. He had a very unique work ethic, if you, if you can tell, over the years. So I, I really appreciate how he plays and how he comes and approaches the game because he takes it very serious and he wants to be the best. So he has that, that thing that everybody wants. He, he has the mama mentality everybody needs to play. And he's evolved, and he's one of the best players in the league. He is. Well, we'll see if he can. He's already got an MVP. He might win a second one this year. We'll see if he can add an NBA championship to his resume this season. And it all begins this week. I am so excited. Ralph, it has been a blast chatting with you as always, talking NBA. We've got some great guests in store coming up. We're going to bring on uh, an NBA referee next week to get an insight and a unique perspective that we don't normally hear about the world of the NBA and professional basketball. I can't wait for that one, too. Yeah, that should be fun. Great. Kenny Meyer, looking forward to that one. That's right. All right, Ralph. Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another edition of Center Court Podcast. Please make sure to follow us on social media, Center Court 50, Ralph Sampson 50. I'm Jason Zone Fisher. You can follow me at Jay-Z Fish. And make sure to follow us, subscribe, rate the podcast, review. It means a lot. Thank you for listening. And we will be back with another edition of Center Court very soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.